So tonight, I would like to look at uh, meditation, and I also would like to look at meditation through the prism of two of the Eightfold Path. But first, I'd like to read two different quotes, one from the Pali Canon, and this is what the Buddha says about practice of meditation. Monks, when the mind is slack, that is not the time to develop the tranquility enlightenment factor, the concentration enlightenment factor, and the equanimity enlightenment factor. So here the Buddha is saying that when the mind is slack, when the mind is a little vague, when the mind is a little sleepy, then actually it's not a good idea to develop the tranquility enlightenment factor, the concentration enlightenment factor, or the equanimity enlightenment factor. And he says, why is that? Because a slack mind cannot well be roused by those states. So he's saying, like, if we are a little vague, with little energy, then it's maybe not such a good idea actually to focus on the breath <laughs> or to try to concentrate too much or to try to just be very calm and still because actually that will give you even less energy. You will feel even more vague, more a little slack. And then he says, when the mind is slack, that is a time to develop the investigation of states, enlightenment factor, the energy, enlightenment factor, and the happiness, enlightenment factor. Why is that? Because a slack mind can well be roused by those states. So he's saying when we're feeling a little vague, like a little after lunch, we feel a little sleepy, a little vague, then maybe to do something which is a little more energetic, or to, to do the loving-kindness meditation, which will kind of give rise to a bit of uplift, of happiness. Or to, in a way, look deeply into the changing nature of things. That's what, in a way, will rouse ourselves a little, will give more energy to the body and mind complex. Then he says, Monks, when the mind is agitated... That is not the time to develop the investigation of state, enlightenment factor, the energy enlightenment factor, or the happiness enlightenment factor. Why is that? Because an agitated mind cannot well be quieted by those states. So we're saying like if you're sitting and you have lots of thought and you feel a little restless, a little agitated, then it might not be such a good idea to try to kind of investigate with the mind or try to bring more energy because then it makes you even more restless. Or loving kindness, might again, might bring a little too much energy. So when the mind is agitated, that is a time to develop the tranquility enlightenment factor, the concentration enlightenment factor, and the equanimity enlightenment factor. Why is that? 
because an agitated mind can well be quieted by those states. And then it's good then to do the breath meditation. Or it was really good to try to really anchor, to really cultivate concentration. Or try to also cultivate the equanimity meditation. And why I'm uh, talking about this is because sometimes one thinks, I just do the breath. The breath, this is the only way. Or I just do the investigation. This is the only way. And the Buddha here is saying it's according to condition. Look out. If you really feel a little too tired and vague, then that will help you. If you feel a little too agitated, then it's better to do that. And so in a way, he's kind of telling us to use the different tools of awareness that we have. And that's what during this week, each day we'll try, we'll introduce a little different theme, a little different object, because each of these objects of concentration of meditation will have a different effect. Then I wanted to read two quotes from a Zen book. This is a book which has not yet found a publisher, but it is a definitive book on Korean Buddhism, on questioning practice, which I have helped recently with uh, editing the English of it. And so that's what it says. If one remains in deep calm without being aware, it means sinking into dullness. And if one remains aware without being calm, it means becoming entangled in one's thoughts. And I think here there is a little the same idea as in the Buddha, that if we just in deep calm, but there is no awareness, then we're going to sink into dullness. But if one is just aware without being calm, then generally we get one really get caught in thought. Then it goes on to say, if one is in a state of being neither aware nor calm, then one is not only entangled in thoughts, but also submerged by dullness. And you might have experienced this today. <laughs> the first day often this happened. And so what he's saying is that if we're neither aware nor calm, then often we kind of move from being, having just lots of thought to being kind of, you know, really vague, like if we kind of like a kind of a nearly dreaming, and then back to the thought. Next one. Clear awareness and deep calm are beneficial. But clear awareness with delusion will not work. So basically what he is saying is that you need to have the clear awareness with the deep calm. And so basically the meditation is about balancing these two qualities. And so if you have just clear awareness with lots of thought then it doesn't work. Deep calm and clear awareness are appropriate, but deep calm with absent-mindedness 
is not appropriate. So sometimes we can be very calm. And it's wonderful. We're very calm. But if there is no clarity or awareness in it, something is missing. How can any delusion arise if calm does not let in any distraction and awareness does not leave any room for unskillful thinking? So here, this quote is pointing out, in a way, the, the job of each, the job of deep calm, the effect of awareness. That, in a way, calm is going to help us to, to, to have the mind more clear because of stability. And awareness is going to help the mind not to be agitated, again, by being held by the calm. So the calm and the clarity is what really help us. They really balance each other. So that's what we try to do in our practice. And so now like, what I like to look at is two of the Eightfold Path. One is appropriate concentration, which is more toward the end, and the other is appropriate vision, which is the first one. And to me, these two actually have a lot to do with what we are doing when we meditate. So appropriate concentration, there are different definitions but I would say there are two main ones. Appropriate concentration can be defined as the concentration we develop in order to experience meditative absorption or the jhanas. But that's actually not what interests me here. But there is another definition which actually sees the appropriate concentration as unification of mind to actually help to one of the quality in the Eightfold Path. Actually, it helps the other of the Eightfold Path. And it's also said it's concentration untainted by craving. And often when we sit in meditation, especially on the first day, often people think, I cannot concentrate. You know, and you generally say this because generally you have lots of thoughts. But actually, I would say that generally you have a really great power of concentration. Think of daily life. When you get totally obsessed by a problem, or you get totally obsessed by somebody, you cannot think about anything else for days. That is concentration. <laughs> but that is concentration in a way tainted by craving, tainted by negative, painful things. So I think we have to see that when we develop concentration in the meditation, it's not that type. We're not trying to be obsessed about the breath, obsessed about the sound. But actually, we're trying to pay attention. We try to focus. We have this ability to focus. And then we try to cultivate more of it. But then I think what we have to see in a Buddhist meditation is that you can have exclusive concentration or inclusive concentration. 
And I would say exclusive concentration is that when you push everything away, you try to push the thought, the sound, everything, and just try to focus on the breath, on all loving kindness. And of course, this can be quite effective, again, to experience meditative absorption. But in order to experience, to cultivate this exclusive concentration, we generally need to be in silence, we generally need to sit hours on end, months on end. And to me, this is like for specialists. And it's not so helpful when you want to take care of your children or you want to cook in the kitchen. Exclusive concentration is not going to help you there. So to me, what makes more sense on a retreat such as this is to develop what I would call inclusive concentration. So you develop the ability we have to focus, to concentrate, but then the concentration is more about anchoring. So the object becomes more a point of reference. And to me, what is very interesting when we meditate is when we come back, like you try to be aware of the breath, then you go away and you come back. And when you come back, Suddenly you're aware of everything in that moment. Or when you try to be aware of the body, you go away, the body disappears. You come back to the body and not only do you come back to the body, you come back to the whole moment. I had that experience many years ago when I was sitting in meditation and I was kind of focusing, here I was focusing on the questioning which I will introduce later. And I noticed that when I was distracted, and right as I was doing that, there was this huge storm. So there was, you could really hear the rain on the roof. And as I was questioning, when I was questioning, I could hearly hear the rain, be aware of the rain. When I became distracted, the rain disappeared. Came back to the questioning, the rain reappeared. And it showed me that function of concentration, it is to actually bring us back to the whole moment. So then with this inclusive concentration, we have the breath, the body, the sound, or the questioning as an anchor in the foreground. And then in the background, you have a wide open awareness, like you have the thought, feeling, sensation, arising and passing away. And then what is, what is interesting with this view of meditation is that you can have the breath in the foreground, the sound in the background, and then you can bring the sound in the foreground and then the breath in the background. And you're not doing two different things. You're just continuing to be aware, you're just continuing to be focused. And then I think it becomes more interesting. It's not mean that we kind of change every two seconds, but that there can be this movement. Like we, if we walk, when we do the walking meditation, we can be aware of the body. That's a foreground. The rest is in the background. And then we bring the sight. We look at things with mindfulness. Then the body goes into the background. And then we can bring the body back and the, what we see in the background. And so in that way, I feel the meditation because uh, become a little more lively. It's not you must just do this and nothing else. But we can really adapt it 
to our conditions, to the circumstances. And I would say the main point of the concentration, and I know often people feel that when we sit in meditation, we should have no thought. I think this is a kind of like the magic thing, you know. So we're kind of waiting for the moment there won't be any thought. But to me, that's not the point of the meditation. The point of the meditation is not about having no thought. Because we have a brain. I mean, you want it to work. So why do you have thought? Because your brain is working. And so in the same way, you cannot stop hearing. You cannot stop thinking. So the meditation is not to stop thinking, but actually by concentrating to create space in the thinking process. And how does it work? And that's why it's so interesting. The point is not so much to stay with the breath of the body, but actually the main point is to come back. So you know what is important is to remember and to make the choice to come back. And actually, when we do this, we can have a thousand thoughts and a thousand times we have the opportunity to come back. And each time we come back, we do something. Each time we come back, we dissolve the power of the mental habit, for example, and we don't feed it. Let's take something you often do easily on meditation. One of the favorite activity, daydreaming. You sit in meditation, the breath, mm, the breath, and if I had, if I was, and then you go into this wonderful daydream. Everything goes according to plan. And the time passes really fast. You, I ring the bell or temple rings the bell and you think, already? But it was getting really juicy, you know, it was getting fun. And in a way, the daydreaming, of course, comes from a creative functioning of imagining. But the more we do it, the more it kind of can lead to frustration. Because what you imagine in your mono-reality often does not happen in real life. When I was in Korea, one of my favorite daydreams at the beginning was to become a mistress of Kung Fu. So I would sit in meditation and dream. I would become this great mistress of Kung Fu and then I would save everybody, etc., etc. Very entertaining. <laughs> Until I decided to try this Kung Fu business. <laughs> so during one of the free seasons, I go to Seoul, I go to one of these dojo of Kung Fu. And after two hours, psh, I had enough, you know. I was not interested. <laughs> So I had to stop daydreaming about it. <laughs> there is really no point. But you see, we cannot daydream. And so in a way to see, like you sit in meditation, to see, ah, daydreaming. And then gently coming back. Gently coming back again and again. And then slowly, you don't feed the daydreaming. And then you also dissolve that habit. In other thing we do often in meditation is planning. So you sit in meditation and you plan where you're going to walk, you plan how much you're going to eat, or whatever it is. 
And then you plan, and then you plan the planning, and then you remember the planning of the planning, and then it's you're going to go quite round and round in circle. And I would say again, the more you plan, the more you feed it. But if you have this focus, the breath or the sound or the body, you come back. And again, you don't feed the habit, you dissolve its power. And I would say one of the things I would suggest with planning is that you plan five times any given thing. And then you leave it, you let it go. Then the next one, five times. <laughs> and hopefully at some point you just think, I don't need to do this right now. One of the things I used to do was to plan my luggage. So I had my, you know, planning luggage making. You know, in six months I go to Mexico, what am I going to put in my luggage? <laughs> it's a bit ahead of time until I saw it. And so now I can see, ah, luggage making, no need now. When it's two weeks ahead, yes, it's fine, but not six months. So to see that actually the, the meditation, the concentration, really, to me, this is one of the really important effect of the concentration, is that each time we come back, we actually do something quite powerful. We don't feed the habit, we dissolve their power, so they can come back to their creative functioning. And through that, we become more spacious. So we still have thought, it's like there is more space around the thought. And at the same time, we become more calm, because in a way we have more choice. If I want to think, I think. If I don't want to, I can let it be. I am not overtaken by the power of the habit. Then I wanted to talk of the first of the Noble Eightfold Path, appropriate vision, also known as right view, Samaditi. And there are many definitions of right view, appropriate vision. But the one that speaks to me in terms of meditation is this one. When one understands our form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness, and how the eyes, sees, and so on, are impermanent, one thereby possesses appropriate vision. I'll read it again. When one understands our form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness, and how the eye sees and so on, are impermanent, one thereby possesses appropriate vision. So basically, he's talking about the five aggregates. He's basically talking about what forms us. And he's basically saying, the Buddha is saying, what forms us is impermanent. And when we see this, we're actually cultivating the first of the Eightfold Path. So it's not something complicated. It's something actually very easy. Can we just be aware of change? And in a way, that's what we do in uh, the meditation. I mean, what we, Spirit Rock generally is a Vipassana center. And Vipassana means looking deeply. You could also translate it as experiential inquiry. And of course, Vipassana can also be translated as insight. 
So when we do insight meditation, then you must have lots of insight. You know, how many insights have you had today? <laughs> but to me, more than insight, what I found interesting about Vipassana is looking deeply, experiential inquiry, which goes together with the concentration. So that's what are the two bases of meditation, the concentration and the looking deeply. And so because if we just do the concentration, then we have the deep calm, but we don't have the clear awareness. And so we need to do the looking deeply to develop the clear awareness. But again, the clear awareness needs the deep calm. So the concentration and the experiential inquiry goes together. Samatha and Vipassana go together. So what we're trying to do is just to see, to kind of go inside the experience. I think it's very important to see this looking deeply, the experiential inquiry is not to be above the experience. It's not to have an idea about the experience. It's not an intellectual or analytical research, abstract. It's really to go inside the experience, inside the sensation, inside the sound, and experience that it arises and it passes away. And also to see that within itself, it changes. Today you might have, I presume, possibly some discomfort. Maybe a little discomfort in the knee, or a little discomfort in the shoulder, or a point in the back there. And you see, generally we, ah, my knee, my pain, this is terrible. My knee is going to drop off. I'll never walk again. But if you go inside the sensation, if you go inside the knee, how does it feel? It moves, it changes, it shifts. And so that's all we need to do. It's at one level, it's really not complicated. You have an itch on the cheek. You sit there, and it's so itchy. And normally you would scratch it, and then it becomes more itchy. But you just go inside it. And it's so there, you think it's going to be there at least all day, if not all week. So you stay there, and suddenly it's so gone. Something you thought was so there, and it's so gone. So in a way, to be aware of that, to be really, to, that's what I think is important. Like today, some of you might have thought, possibly, I'm so distracted today, I'm so agitated. If it's like this every day, this is going to be a terrible retreat. Or if you feel very sleepy, oh, I'm so sleepy today, so sleepy. If I am sleepy like this every day, it's going to be awful. So what are we doing here? We're doing what I would call permanentizing. You're saying this is happening now, and this is going to continue the whole week. So I'm going to have the same thing every day. And as I said at the beginning, this is the only thing I can guarantee, is that things will change. One way or another, 
things don't say the same. And I think it's very important to see that through the day, it's like we have different energy level. Morning, early morning, generally we bright, unless we're not an early riser, and we think, yes, meditation, yes. Second meditation, okay. Third meditation, ooh. After lunch, ooh. <laughs> Second in the afternoon, ooh. And then the last one generally is very nice. So I think it's very important that we cannot maintain the same level of energy throughout the day. I think it's very important to see that we are not trying to develop a permanent state of deep awareness and clear, uh, clear awareness and deep calm. As the Buddha says, it will depend on the condition. Sometimes we'll have more energy, and of course, generally it will be easier. Sometimes we have less energy. And then just to, as the Buddha said, to work with those circumstances. How can I help myself there? For example, if you feel sleepy, you can open the eyes wide and you can look a little toward the ceiling and ask yourself, who is sitting here? Who is breathing? Just as a means to kind of wake, you, wake yourself up a little. Oh, my teacher used to say, if you feel sleepy, focus on the breath and think that your life rests upon a single breath. What if I die in the next minute? Then it might wake you up a bit. Or you can do what Temple suggested, to just stand up. But you see that we can try to help ourselves, even if we feel sleepy. Or we can just be with the sleepiness. That's interesting. At the beginning, you're okay, then you become a little sleepy, and then it passes, and then you emerge again. So to see that these things change, our feeling, our sensation changes. And so why is it important to be aware of that? Because of our tendency to think it's always like this. It will never change. And so the more we are in tune with that aspect of our experience, then the more we can actually flow with life instead of constantly fighting life, fighting the change, wanting things to be different, instead of creatively engaging with what is going on. So I would say that with the appropriate concentration, the appropriate vision, then we develop what I would call quietness and clarity together, which then turn into what I would call creative awareness. And so what we're doing on a retreat is to develop that creative awareness. And I would say the creative awareness has two aspects. One is acceptance and the other is transformation. So I think what we're doing is becoming more aware. And what is interesting in terms of this Vipassana meditation, in terms of the insight, is that generally what we become aware of at the beginning might not be so much fun, but actually can be very interesting. I can remember one of my first uh, insights, so to speak, although I was not doing Vipassana meditation. 
I was sitting in Korea asking, what is this? What is this? And suddenly, I became so aware of my thoughts. I became so aware of my mind. And I became aware that I was so self-centered because all my thoughts were about me. And so I would say then I was like 95% self-centered. When up to that moment, because since the age of 10, I had wanted to save the world, I thought I was one of the most compassionate person in the universe. And to see that was like a wake-up call. Hey, wait a minute. This is not matching. And then, but what was interesting with that awareness is that I did not feel terrible. I did not feel I'm a terrible Buddhist. I think only on myself. I thought, wow, that's what is a problem. That's what I have to work on. And it became very light. And I also became aware everybody else was doing the same. I was not the only one. Everybody else was doing the same. And what was interesting was to see that when our self-interest coincided, the four of us in that room were quite happy. And when they did not, we got into trouble. And then one day, I thought something was different. It was really different, the atmosphere among us. And then I realized that everybody was doing things for the other and not for themselves. But all the four were doing it together at the same time. And it lasted two weeks. And it felt like paradise. And then it was impermanent. So it changed and reversed. (laughs) So this creative awareness, I think it's very important to see that what we're doing on retreat actually is to build the muscle of the creative awareness, the power of the creative awareness, so then we can use it into our daily life. So it's not so that it stays here, but it's really so that we can activate it in our daily life. And one of the things we can do first here is creative awareness when we walk in nature. At the moment, it's beautiful here. And you have the deers, and soon we will have the, the, the birds, and it's beautiful. And so I think you go walking in nature. And what do you do? Are you very aware of the blueness of the sky and the blueness of the flower? And for two minutes, maybe. And then you think of something else. You think of the office, or you think of whatever you think about. And then you're not there. You're still walking, but you're really not there. And it's interesting that moment when we come back. We come back to walking, to being in nature, and we really look. And everything then looks nearly magic, like it looks more deep. But it's not magic. Awareness is not kind of like fairy dust. (laughs) But it's more that something is removed. The fact that some of the time we're really not here. And that you can really see when you sit in meditation. You can be so far away. And then you hear a sound and you come back. And you come back to here. 
And so that's what I would really encourage you during when you go walking in nature, trying to come back and notice how it is when you're really aware in a wide and open and stable manner and you look at what is around you and you're really aware of where they are at instead of how you filter them, but really see the flower for the flower, the tree for the tree, the sky for the sky. Then another place we can bring the creative awareness is at work. And again, you can look a little, as each of you has a little job, how do you approach the job? You approach the job that you already stressed before you even start it. Am I going to do it well? I should do this or I should not do that? Or are you start, start the job and already think about the second thing you have to do, the third thing you have to do so that you're not totally present to the job? Or do you do it mechanically and think of something else? Or do you do it and think, if only I had arrived earlier and I could have got my favorite job and now I have to clean the toilet, I don't like it so much. What do you do? And so in a way, how can I work and be really present to the work? Present to, but it doesn't mean that I go very slowly. You see, it's very interesting. In Burma, they think you must go slow. So in Burma, some retreat, you go like this. <laughs> and in Korea, you go like that. You don't, uh, the walking meditation is at a good pace and you go, you don't go slowly there. But it's interesting, different tradition, having different idea. Because for some, very likely, hundred years ago, somebody did it slowly and it was great. And then hundred years ago in Korea, somebody did it fast and they thought, that's great. Everybody must do that. But in a way, what I would say is trying to find the middle way. How can we work, still be efficient and really be present to it? And at the same time, with the looking deeply, being aware of what is it that stopped me from really being present to it. Once I was teaching a, a, day, a day retreat at work. So the people came in the morning, then they went to work, came back in the afternoon. Stephen and I, we were doing that. And so Stephen suggested something, I suggested something else. And Stephen suggested that the people try to really be present, not to be ahead of themselves, not to stress themselves out, but to do each thing at a time with awareness. And then one person came back and said she always felt she had to be stressed and going fast in order to be efficacious. And she did what Stephen suggested and actually she said it was as efficacious if not more and I had no stress. I felt so stable, so creative. It was such a better way to feel about working. So we're trying, as you're here, trying to see how can I approach the working period? How can I really bring the creative awareness to that? Also creative awareness in relationship. That's also, I think, you can bring it anywhere with our children, in the supermarket. This is one of my favorite practice, queuing in the supermarket. 
just standing meditation. And you notice when you're in the supermarket or in the post office, you're always in the wrong queue, <laughs> the slow one. Or there is a problem with the machine, or the person is talking, or there is problem. And so you kind of like, and you can notice, you kind of like nearly push, 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 push. And kind of like mentally, magically trying to push the thing. You know, and you kind of... And then just come back to standing. I have, it's okay to just queue. I mean, you can do this here, also in the queue, but the queue doesn't... It's not so cuey anymore. They've got this two double system now. And I think, wow, they're going fast. Before you had the cue all the way outside. Lots of practice. So, anyway, but just to be aware. To me, that's one thing which is interesting. To be aware when we're standing in the supermarket and to see the movement when we get lost. Then when we get again the stability, the openness. So that's what I would like to suggest, that you try to cultivate, practice, manifest this creative awareness while you're here, but also to see that you will take it back to your own place. And I'd like to finish just to say a few words about cultivation and effect. That when we sit in meditation, or when we walk in meditation, or when we bringing awareness to working, to being in nature. I think what is important to see that what we're trying to do is to cultivate, to cultivate concentration and looking deeply. That's what we're trying to do. But often what we do is that we start, you know, you start to watch the breath or be aware of the body. And within two minutes, you go into checking. Is it working? Am I deeply calm, as she said, or clearly aware, as she said? Well, I would say in two minutes, maybe not. At the end of the day, possibly. But to see that when you go into checking your meditation, comparing it to a previous meditation retreat, or comparing it to what you read in a book, or comparing it to the experience of your friend, that's not cultivation. That's checking. And I don't think that is so useful. And so I think it's very important to see, am I cultivating or am I checking? And then when you see yourself checking, just coming back into the middle. Because often what happens is that we sit in meditation and we wait for something special to happen. You know, no thought start to lift off from the cushion, <laughs> start to lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> and so you wait, wait. And generally nothing happens. I mean, it might time to time. I'll talk about this later. But it doesn't happen every two minutes. So that's the thing. To check, is it happening? There is not much point. What is important is a cultivation, not the effect of the cultivation. Of course, if you, you, know, you see it for day on end and nothing changes whatsoever, then fine, drop the meditation. <laughs> but like, what is interesting is that often people ask me, you know, 
my meditation is not so good, I really can't concentrate, what do you think? And generally I ask, what about your life? And they say, my life is much better. Because I think often we have an abstract idea of what it means to be concentrated, what it means to look deeply. And to me, I would say the most important effect of the meditation is not actually what is obvious, what one might call meditative experiences, but actually what I call the effect. Like you sit for 30 minutes or you sit for 45 minutes, and even if you have thought, even if you are sleepy, at the end, it's like there is a release. And to me, that's what is really important, that releasing, that actually the meditation is a method of de-grasping. And this is what we will be able to take in our daily life, that de-grasping, which comes together with this creative awareness, with this stability and openness. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Because we have uh, a little time. Yes? You use the word um, creativity in two different contexts. So could you go back and say again about daydreaming? You said it came from creative imagination or imaginative creativity, and then you talked about creative awareness with meditation. Yeah, I'm all for creative. You see, what I find, what it seems to me, is that when we develop this mindfulness, this awareness, what we're doing is not developing what we call, we would, could call staring at reality. We're not just trying to, to stare. To me, what actually we develop is an awareness which is an inner awareness and an outer awareness. And that awareness as this, um, which comes from the concentration, this dissolution of the habits. So what I was trying to say is that, you see, we have mental habits, emotional habits, physical habits, relationship habits, which often are quite painful. And in a way, but these things come from creative functioning of the organism. Daydreaming comes from imagining. We need to imagine, so that's a creative functioning. We need to plan creative functioning. But do we need to plan 150 times the same thing? Possibly not. And generally, it works better to just plan five times, drop it, come back to it later. So, So to me, the concentration help us to come back to the creative functioning of that type of thought, of that type of feeling. The same with fear, with anger, I would say they are creative functioning of the organism. Mm. But if they become habituated, then generally it becomes unwholesome and create difficult, painful state for ourselves and others. So in that context, that's what I mean, creative functioning. In the context of the creative awareness, what I mean is that by concentrating, by looking deeply, 
we dissolve the grasping. But in dissolving something, actually something else starts to emerge. So I feel that what emerges is not just by staring at reality, but more a creative way to be in the world. So that we have, in a way, like nearly more choices, and I would also say we have more creativity. And in the next time I talk, I will also talk about creative engagement, which I think is another part of what we're trying to develop on the path with the Eightfold Path. That's what I meant. Yes? You were describing the, oh. So part of the talk was uh, discussing the different types of meditation to be used with different energetic states. Yeah. Have you used it? Does it work? Is it, you know, is, what's your personal experience with that? Oh, my experience with that is that I feel this is what... This is what I do. This is why I teach the way I teach. If I do a week retreat, every day I teach something different. The breath, the body, listening, feeling tone, questioning, loving kindness, equanimity. Because each of those have a different effect. Like the, the breath, generally, as Temple was saying, generally it calms you. You know, and, I mean, even the police, even the police, even the firemen are using the breath as a means to calm them, themselves in a stressful situation. Of course, if you are asthmatic, it might not work. Then you need to do something different. But the breath generally calms you. Being aware of the body generally grounds you. It really has this grounding effect. Tomorrow I will introduce listening. And I feel that listening has this opening effect. Loving kindness generally has an uplifting effect, also opening effect. The questioning, you'll see when I bring the questioning, generally you can't fall asleep with the questioning. <laughs> Even though the Korean can, but they're really good at sleeping. <laughs> but generally questioning, it really, you, you have this brightening effect with it. And then equanimity meditation, again it has this calming, stilling effect. So yeah, I would, I would personally, I would agree with the Buddha. <laughs> I mean, that's why when I found that quote, I thought, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I think, in a way, what my teacher, who was a Zen master, used to tell us was to song, song, jok, jok. You have to balance brightness and calmness. And I really feel that's what we kind of, in a way, it, it helps the meditation to do that. That not to feel that, oh, I'm so agitated, I can't do anything. Well, I would say Try. Try the breath. Try the equanimity. You feel calm, but a little, possibly a little drowsy. You could bring the listening. You could bring the questioning. So you have to, I mean, the Buddha says it. I think it's a good idea, but you have to try it out yourself. <laughs> but I think with a different uh, tool of awareness we're going to present, then you should be able to try it out and see for yourself. So uh, you mentioned appropriate vision and you spoke of impermanence 
and sort of maybe observing an impermanence from, from within an experience. Um, are there other elements of appropriate vision that you think are important for, for having the, the most collaboration, you know, or positive effect with concentration? Well, of course, you have, um, you know, you're told to look at change. I mean, that's an easier one to look, the impermanence. The other one, of course, is to look at dukkha, which Stephen will talk a lot about during the week, so I won't go into it now. But basically, it's to look at the fact that things are unreliable, things are unsatisfactory, and then also how can I be with them when they're painful? And of course, to look at not-self, to look at anatta. But to me, the way I would look at not-self would be to look at the flow of condition that makes me. And to me, actually, these three things are actually the key to compassion. I would say not only is it good to go with concentration, I would say that actually if we really know and experience these three characteristics, then out of that comes creative, wise compassion. Because, for example, the last one, the anatta, the anatta is not just about saying, it doesn't say that I do not exist. And, you know, and it doesn't say that suddenly all of you are going to disappear in a puff of smoke. and It would be a big empty hole here. But it's basically saying that we are a flow of conditions. And actually, I would say we are a flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And for me, the creative awareness is not just actually about being aware of ourselves, but being of ourselves and the world, but not the world through our self-centered prism, but the world where it is, people where they are and how they are. But I think I'll, I'll talk more about that in two days. Okay, if there is uh, nothing else, ah, sure, sure. So I understand that if there is slackness in the mm -hmm. mind, that it may not be the best time to work on concentration. But if you want concentration to be able to be looking deeply, can you can you fudge it? I mean, is that you know, is there a is there a way that are you suggesting that if there is a lot of drowsiness, a lot of slackness, and doing practices to help collect, unify the mind, are just not... Is there, is there a good reason to strive for it or try anyway? Uh, that's what the Buddha says, you know, it's not me. <laughs> but no, no, I, personally I say try it out. You see, this is a thing. This is what the Buddha suggests. I think it's a good idea too, but I think it's interesting. What is the Buddha saying? You see, the Buddha saying, I think, to me what is interesting is that a lot of the time we associate meditation with calmness. And this is what we're going for, calmness. This is relax relaxation, calmness, stillness. And basically, I think the Buddha is saying, you can, and the Zen people also are saying, you can have too much of a good thing. You see, if you are calm, and you just cultivate calmness, actually it can become a little kind of uh, heavy. It kind of like, there is not that uplifting factor. So you see, you, that's why I think then what is, can be helpful 
it doesn't mean that you abandon concentration. It's not you saying, concentration, don't come near me. I must not have concentration. No, no, it's more like trying to just concentrate actually might require too much energy. And you don't have the energy to do it. So what about? So you feel calm, a little drowsy. What about just trying to straighten the back and listen? And then you concentrate on listening, but concentrating on listening might actually be a little more vivid, especially if there are sounds. If it's very silent, then it might not, very, might not help very much. <laughs> or if you feel a little kind of you know, drowsy and calm, may I be happy? May all beings be happy. That might a little kind of wake you up. So I think that's where the... But you see, if you do the loving kindness, you still will do a bit of concentration. But you're not privileging it. I think what the Buddha... In another quote he said, if you put too much effort, you will get uh, restless. If you put actually too much equanimity, you will not be able to deal with the taints. So it's not about don't do concentration, don't do this. It's saying you can do concentration, but if you want to help yourself, you might need to bring something a little brighter. If you are agitated, you might want to bring a little more calm. So it's just kind of where what you add to the mix. It doesn't mean that you abandon one for the other, but he's saying if you put too much emphasis on it, in that state, it might not help you. Okay, so thank you very much. So now there are 30 minute walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.